3: magic and medicine a bonus series of the three ravens podcast all about superstitious spells crazy charms and some downright revolting remedies i'm eleanor conlon and i'm climbing a tree to cut mistletoe with a golden sickle and i'm joined by my co-host martin Vaux.
0: eleanor i'm slightly worried about you climbing trees have you got firm grips are you experienced with this sort of thing
3: absolutely okay I have lots of experience better
0: to be safe than sorry that's my view
3: (laughs) we are thrilled to be back for our first bonus episode of series three after a little break in the wake of haunting season Mm -hmm. now we're getting ready for all things festive and we have certainly hung up our mistletoe yeah
0: I'm hoping if I linger under it at just the right moment I might get a kiss!
3: You could be lucky. (laughs) But any mistletoe which features in today's episode has nothing to do with kissing, because today we're going to be talking about druids. (laughs) Martin, have you ever met a druid or encountered any druidry in your life? I don't
0: think I've ever met a druid. I mean, I I think I've met one person who said they're a druid, but I wasn't entirely convinced. I've encountered them a lot in writing, in fiction, but... I mean, I think they're a bit mysterious and and through the documentaries that I have watched about, you know, life in the ancient past, it seems like. What we know about druids is a bit speculative. There's not a whole ton of evidence. So I'm really interested to hear what you've been able to unearth in your research.
3: Perfect. Now, it's worth saying that I hadn't quite appreciated what a huge topic this was (laughs) when I started doing the research for this episode. There is a lot to say about the history of druids and the modern practice of druidry. So I really will be only scratching the surface here. I don't claim to be an expert at all and wholeheartedly welcome any more information. So if there's anything you would have liked to be included, anything you know about Druids, dear listener, please do write in and let me know. I mean, that is
0: a general Three Ravens rule. If there are things that we've missed out that you think should have been included, please contact us.
3: Yes, we love finding out more information. You can never have too much knowledge. No, And indeed. I have a feeling that this particular topic is one we could easily return to in more depth. So possibly I'll title this episode Druids Part
0: 1. <laughs> that leaves you open to like... Return of the Druids at some point. Which sounds
3: like a frankly amazing action movie, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, let's see how we get on, but that may well be the case.
0: Okay, so can we start by defining what a druid is, in case anybody listening isn't familiar with the term?
3: Absolutely. A druid was historically a high-ranking priest figure in Celtic cultures. Okay. In addition to being religious leaders, the druids may have been healers, advisors and legal authorities. Mm. In the modern world, druidry is a spiritual, sometimes but not always, religious movement which promotes relationships with nature and its divine essence. They
0: really like Stonehenge, don't they, them druids?
3: They like all sorts of outdoors. <laughs> um, theological beliefs in modern druids vary really widely. Okay. There is this core sense of nature-based spiritual frameworks and a regular practice of connection with nature, often resulting in environmental work as well. And
0: some pretty cool costumes, gotta say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so do we know when the Druids first originated? Like, is there a start date for Druidry?
3: We have a slight problem here because early Druids left no written accounts of their law, mm. possibly because it was against their religious doctrine to do so. It seems likely that people in positions of power within society would be literate. So it makes sense that they perhaps weren't allowed to keep written records, which is why we don't have anything. Mm. And it's within reasonable conjecture that part of the early druidic training involved memorising stories and rituals. So it makes sense that theirs was a purely oral
0: tradition. Yeah, of course. Because, you know, we talked a little bit about vellum and parchment, paper of course not something that lasted not something that was around written languages little bit sketchy about how people even wrote and recorded mm-hmm. back in the celtic era you know we, we have concepts like the ogham alphabet yeah
3: which we'll talk a bit more about later
0: um so how do we know what we know if Nobody was writing it down.
3: Well, luckily for us, contemporaries of the Druids from other cultures weren't at all shy about recording their experiences and thoughts. Right, gotcha. So we have sources from the Greeks and the Romans, so from the classical era, basically. One of the best sources for information about earliest references to Druids is actually Julius Caesar.
0: Famous fan of the optometrist chain Specsavers, you know. Really? Yeah, because he came and he saw.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, <laughs> well. <laughs> he, he actually
0: provided a lot of useful social historical information, though, didn't he, Julius Caesar?
3: Yeah, he did, as well as conquering. Yes. Caesar's De Bello Gallico, uh, the commentaries on the Gallic Wars, were written from 50 BC after a nine-year campaign against the Gauls. If
0: you've never read it, it is kind of mind-blowingly awesome as a text. It's yeah, it so is. interesting. It's
3: quite, it's quite a slog, yeah. it's in several books. Um, And it was actually written as a bit of a publicity stunt, mm. all seven books of it, <laughs> to increase Caesar's popularity with the plebeians and protect him from his aristocratic enemies who yeah. were trying to get rid of him after the Gallic Wars, basically. Well,
0: he did have a little bit of a difficult time with pointy objects.
3: <laughs> yeah, he, he did. Uh, popularity um, uh, among his peers was yeah. not Not his strong suit. Mm. But in addition to talking about battles and tactics and obviously sort of conquering left, right and centre, the Gallic Wars does act as a bit of a travel diary too because Caesar describes his experiences and the people he meets on his journey. Okay,
0: so in particular... What do we learn from Caesar about the Gallic Druids then?
3: Well, he wrote extensively on Druids. And while some of it may have been exaggeration to communicate his own ideas and purposes to the people of Rome, some of it is likely based in fact. It's actually from De Bello Gallico that we get the idea of Druids not using written language Caesar thought that the Druids' practice of oral transmission of knowledge was both to keep their knowledge from becoming common and also to improve their faculties of memory.
0: Well that's interesting isn't it because we see things like that in quite a few different church beliefs it's, it's not a, mm. just a Druidic thing I mean, No
3: memorising the Catechism Yeah in precisely you know what?
0: I was going to use the example of the Roman Catholic faith for the longest time they kept knowledge in Latin and didn't teach other people Latin unless yep. they were of a particular social class. So it
3: was very protective. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, Caesar also suggests it could take up to 20 years to complete druidic studies. Oh, that sounds
0: great, doesn't it? Yeah. Something that deep that you it would take <laughs> really, 20 years really to become deep. a master.
3: Um, we, we do know that the Gauls at the time had written language, so um, it was an active choice that mm. the, the druids at that period were making not to write things down because the Gauls did use Greek letters and by Caesar's time, they'd moved to Latin.
0: So does Caesar give us any sort of clues about the place of Druids in society? Because in my mind, they're kind of the highest of the high, the holiest of the holy, and maybe are almost... Kind of outside of society because they're so sacred, but that's just me speculating.
3: Well, he does. He, he writes that the Druids were as important as the equites or the nobles in pagan Celtic society. Mm. And you're right, they did have a sort of separate hierarchy where they selected a single leader who ruled until his death with a successor chosen by vote. And he also says that they were exempt from military service and from paying
0: taxes. Well, obviously, there's lots about this that sounds appealing, but also from my understanding, Standing, druids kind of cut across tribes. So, whereas, you know, you have a a particular leader of a particular tribe, the Druids are a kind of national or almost international order where they can almost be negotiators and peacekeepers between different groups of people. So they kind of have a different status to a regular noble. Yeah,
3: exactly. You would be able to attend a ritual presided over by a Druid, even if you were from a different tribe, for example. Um, Um, And they did, we think, organise religious ceremonies, sacrifices, divination and judicial procedure as well. So if you had you know, a dispute, you Mm. might take it to the Druid to have it resolved.
0: That's really interesting. And
3: we've got two other classical writers, well, more than two, but uh, two I'll talk about right now, who, in mentioning the Druids, um, we've got uh, Diodorus, Siculus and Strabo. They both say, um, separate accounts in separate centuries, (laughs) that the Druids were so highly respected that they could stop battles if they intervened.
0: Yeah, I've heard about this, the idea that they could step out between two fighting armies and the two fighting armies would stop
3: they would have to stop yeah yeah. they'd have
0: to stop because to kill a druid or endanger a druid was seen as you know bad luck for absolutely everyone
3: yeah it was not a lucky thing to do
0: that's so interesting so you said that that was just two other sources we have three sources so far but are there any others
3: yeah, there are, although none so extensive as Julius Caesar. Right. Like he, he really goes to town in the Gallic Wars. But Druids and their practices were clearly something the literate classical world was aware of and wanted to write about. OK,
0: so being a bit of a language nerd, I'm, I'm going to ask a bit of a linguistics question, but... The word druid, do we know where that actually comes from? Um,
3: Well, the word druid in English comes from the Latin, druides, which, um, according to Roman writers, came from the Gaulish word for them. Oh, okay, so, so a bit of a circular. That is the word, I think. <laughs> we also see it written as druidae in Latin. Mm. However, we've also got the words dru in Old Cornish, Drew, or probably the same pronunciation in Middle Welsh, excuse me, my not knowing how to pronounce Middle Welsh, and drui in Old Irish, all meaning variations of seer or sorcerer. Oh,
0: awesome. So they are the sorcerer class.
3: Yes. Some have also suggested that the Proto-Celtic word was Druides, meaning oak knower, which links to the importance of trees and nature to Druidic practice. Oak knower, somebody who knows the oak.
0: Yeah, and oak trees, I'm sure we will discuss this, but they are super important to Druidic belief. You've got to wonder if that's one of those words or word sounds that's ascribed to the object because of the people or the people are ascribed the word sound the other way around. Yes, exactly. Mm, Very interesting. interesting. Okay, so what else does Caesar have to say about what the Druids actually got up to? Like, what are the headlines, according to old Julius (laughs) Caesar?
3: Well, he talks about their involvement with theology and cosmology and astronomy. He says that the Druids were concerned with, and this is a quote, the stars and their movements, the size of the cosmos and the Earth, the world of nature, and the power and might of the immortal gods—awesome. Which gives <laughs> us an idea of the Druids as these extraordinarily civilized and learned, almost natural philosophers. Yeah, it sounds
0: awesome, doesn't it? Fantastic, doesn't
3: it? What what a what a pathway. Yeah. And he says that actually Britain was the centre of Druidic study, mm. although he's writing from his experiences in Gaul. But he says the Druids met annually. At a sacred space.
0: Well, firstly, I think we've got to doff our caps to Caesar just at this point to say thank you very much for being so thorough in in recording this. Yes, early druids,
3: nil poil for record keeping. Julius Caesar, 10 points. (laughs) (laughs) If if he was telling the truth, because De Bello Gallico and its accounts of druidry has been. A bit of a bone of contention for scholars of the Druids, in fact.
0: Oh, really? Modern
3: historians, including our great hero, Ronald Hutton, author of fantastic books, which I highly encourage you to read some of his work if you haven't already... Um, have put forward the view that Caesar manipulated the idea of the Druids and their practices for his own ends.
0: I mean, to be fair, that is just about what every historian ever has done.
3: Exactly, (laughs) yes.
0: It's what writers do.
3: Most people (laughs) come at a historical account with a Slight agenda, don't yeah, they? I, mean, I don't think there is any such thing as an unbiased historical account. No, any
0: travel log, likewise. Even if it's sort of contemporary history, as it were, describing what it's like to visit a particular nation. If you were to write an account of your holiday, you would describe things in particular ways. For good reason.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And some people have suggested that despite talking about the Druids as a significant part of Gallic society, he doesn't mention them in any conquests. Mm. And he did quite a lot of conquering and gore yes. uh, over that nine year period. And um, Ronald Hutton in particular thought that Caesar had presented the Druids as both civilised and barbaric, so that they represented a society worth including in the Roman Empire which required civilising with Roman rule and values. Oh, I see. So, like, they're they're worthy of joining because they're intelligent and educated and they've got all these skills and potentially powers, Mm. but they still do this barbaric thing, so we still need to impose Roman rule.
0: Okay, so Caesar may have been exaggerating a bit to help justify intended invasion and the imperial project of Rome.
3: Every historian thinks so. There's a historian called Miranda Oldhouse Green who's written extensively on the Druids, and he, she's pointed out that while he might have embellished things a little bit, it was unlikely he would have just made everything up. No, as he was accompanied on his conquest tour of Gaul by a lot of other Roman senators who might have mentioned it in their own accounts if he'd been outright lying.
0: Yeah, very good point. And and so what about? Any other sources? I mean, who else can we rely upon for our information about ancient druids as they once were?
3: Oh, I mentioned him already, but uh, Diodorus, author of the astoundingly huge work Bibliotheca Historica between 60 and 30 BC, when I say astoundingly huge, yeah. this work was in forty volumes. Forty volumes! Diodorus set about to produce the entire history of the world up until that point. Whoa! And he went about it in an extremely lengthy way. Yeah, that's that's I a think beefy only text. about fifteen of them still survive, but still, that's pretty impressive. That's given amazing, isn't it? From how long ago they were, and he says that the Jews were philosophers and learned in religious affairs, and that they were honoured in society. We've also got a chap called Pomponius Mela, um, who was a geographer, an early geographer, a map a person who tried to uh, map the world, I suppose, as right. he knew it. And he was writing around 43 AD. He was the first person to say that the Druids underwent secret training in caves and forests. Ooh, caves <laughs> and forests. Sounds quite forest. exciting, doesn't it?
0: See, I mean, everything you're talking about, kind of appeals to me, Eleanor, vanishing into the forest to (laughs) memorise long chunks of poetic lore. It does
3: sound pretty great, doesn't it? (laughs) We also get a reference in 750 AD in a poem by the Irish monk and saint Blathmac.
0: Solid name. (laughs) Blathmac. Hi, I'm (laughs) Blathmac.
3: Where he says of Jesus... He was better than a prophet, more knowledgeable than every druid, a king who was a bishop and a complete sage. A mm,
0: little bit on the tautological side there, but I guess that makes a, a point, a point.
3: Yeah. So even for a monk in the Christian community, the druids were considered extremely knowledgeable. Mm. So we say that Jesus and druids are in the same yeah. breath there. No,
0: I mean, like, I hear, I hear you. I, I just, I don't know. I'm not convinced. Not
3: convinced by Blasmack. Well,
0: uh, I mean, l- if we believe Jesus was the son of a poor carpenter from regional <laughs> desert nation, he's not going to be as wise as somebody who spent twenty, 20 years, years
3: training in <laughs> cave. No, you have got a good point there. <laughs> yep. Do you remember Nennius? Yeah, we mentioned him in our Middlesex episode earlier this year. Mm. He was the Welsh monk who wrote the Historia Bretonum, who may have been responsible for the whole New Troy thing. Yes,
0: spelling mistake Spelling Nennius. mistake Nennius. Yeah. Well,
3: he relates the story of Vortigern, who was a 5th century warlord and king of Kent, who invited 12 Druids to help him after he was excommunicated from the Christian community at that time, which is interesting because it suggests possible Druidic survival in Britain after the Roman invasion Ooh. and potentially at the same time as Christianity is active within Britain. Although Nennius was writing in the 9th century and could have been engaged in a flight of imagination.
0: Yeah, in terms of surviving Druids, I mean, I I don't know if this is something that you're you're planning to touch on later, but I remember there was a massive sacrifice and and enormous slaughter of Druids by the Romans invading Anglesey.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that's kind of one big historic moment that I, I am familiar with. But I also remember reading that druids were involved in human sacrifice or likely were involved in human sacrifice and obviously that's a bit controversial now do we have any kind of basis in fact for this human sacrifice idea because i'm imagining if you were writing about a foreign type of holy caste and you wanted to cast dispersions about them saying oh well they kill other human beings for their gods we must therefore do away with them it's quite a good way of kind of belittling them and making them seem lesser
3: yeah, exactly. I mean, and sure, I think we don't know for sure, hmm. as you say. Roman and Greek writers certainly make a lot of references to Druids as practitioners of human sacrifice, but it could be imperialist propaganda hmm. with the con- conquerors projecting what they saw as barbaric traits onto the people they wanted to invade to kind of justify their conquests and confirm what they saw as their own superiority.
0: It's complicated, isn't it? Because hmm. we know that the Greeks and Romans were more than happy to kill people. Like, that's yeah. very much part of the game for them. Whether it was part of their religious practice, mm. a little bit more debatable. I guess that's
3: the difference, isn't it? Yeah. Like, oh well, we're so much better because we don't do it as part of our religious practice. Well, you know,
0: we we can talk about vestal virgins and we can talk about, you mm. know, pyrrhic sacrifice. So that definitely happened in, you know, the quote unquote classical world. And also archaeological evidence of ritual death has been found all over europe like we have physically seen Mm. some examples in museums and that kind of strongly points to iron age celts practicing human sacrifice in some ways
3: yeah those graves can't all be honored warriors can (laughs) they
0: (laughs) like for example bog bodies Mm. We, we have talked about this before the lindo man that's a famous one he has these marks of what appear to be violent death his body then cast into water and we've talked about this Mm. idea a few times on three ravens this idea of water as a transitional kind of space where you pass something into water whether that's a body or an object and it passes from our world into the other world the afterlife to be useful there
3: well, Caesar says that Druids did prefer to use criminals as sacrificial victims rather than innocent members of society, mm. which is somewhat heartening. But then he also describes victims being burned alive in a large wooden and wicker effigy.
0: <laughs> Summa is ecumenin.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: wherever we heard that one before? <laughs> so whether or not he's being accurate or he's just giving the makers of the wicker man <laughs> a great ideas. idea, yeah. but several centuries later. (laughs) Unfortunately, it is pretty hard to find archaeological evidence of large wicker men Mm. when it's literally gone up in smoke. So we do have to leave that one to conjecture. However, there are frequent enough references to human sacrifice being part of juridic rituals for us to infer there was maybe...
0: Some basis, in fact. I, it wouldn't surprise me, I've got to say. For, for the culture of the time, it seemed like killing people was kind of bread and butter. Yeah,
3: kind of <laughs> normal. And we have this account in the 10th century which talks about the threefold death.
0: Ooh, that sounds interesting. What's the threefold death?
3: Well, it states that sacrifices to the deities Tutates, also known as Mercury, Aesos, also known as Mars, and Terranis, also known as Jupiter, should be by drowning, hanging, and burning. The historian and expert on Iron Age religion, Anne Ross, proposed that the Lindoman bog body actually was an example of the threefold death human sacrifice ritual. Ooh. Because he had his throat cut, he was strangled and he was hit on the head. And he may have then been an offering to several different gods. I mean, on
0: the one hand, that is kind of unpleasant, but it's also absolutely fascinating it's
3: so interesting isn't it oh, and then I must... as you say the body was put into water as well so yeah. that would be another layer to that I
0: I gotta say, you know, and this may be from reading and watching lots of fantasy, but I have always associated druids with augury and predicting the future. Do we have any evidence on that?
3: That definitely comes up to yes. Cicero actually said he knew a Gaulish druid who claimed to have that knowledge of nature which the Greeks call physiologia. And he used to make predictions sometimes by means of augury and sometimes by means of conjecture.
1: Conjecture? <laughs> we can
3: all do that, Cicero. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. And uh, Diodorus Siculus writes about druids attending sacrifices to the gods as intermediaries between the human and the divine, able to interpret signs they received. I'm going to read you this section from Biblioteca Historica because it's very
0: vivid. Excellent.
3: These men predict the future by observing the flight and calls of birds and by the sacrifice of holy animals. All orders of society are in their power. And in very important matters, they prepare a human victim, plunging a dagger into his chest. By observing the way his limbs convulse as he falls and the gushing of his blood, they're able to read the future.
0: Blimey. I mean, that's quite unambiguously making the case for druids engaging in human sacrifice, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean... As I've said, it was an absolutely insane work in 40 volumes Mm. and Deodoros was nothing if not thorough. But I will leave our listeners to decide if they believe him or not.
0: Okay, Eleanor, you are talking about predicting the future. I am going to make a series of predictions now. I think that you will talk about the druid's relation to mistletoe, which is really important for this time of year and all times of years. I'm hoping that you will talk about femininity and druids because i have big questions about whether for example women can become druids and then i'm also and i think this is a bit of an easy one but i am going to guess that you are going to talk to us about how the celtic revival connects to modern beliefs around druidry am i right about these things you
3: will find out right after this
2: Now, you covered some of this
3: in your super interesting mega Mabon special on the autumn equinox, where you delved into the wonders of Irish folklore. Mm. Perhaps unsurprisingly, there are a lot of references to druids in medieval Irish tales, even once Ireland was Christianised.
0: Yes, now druids pop up a lot as advisors to lords and kings there often with the gift of prophecy and occasionally with other magical abilities too. You know, one character that we definitely link to the concept of the druid is, of course, Merlin. He's sort of a ubiquitous wizard who, who appears in a lot of the Grail cycle.
3: Yes, we've got Merlin. And we've also got the character of Cathbad, who's the chief druid in the court of Ulster and pops up in several different tales mm. as he's sort of travelling, as you mentioned, druids travelling between tribes. Yes, Cathbad travels between Um, You've probably heard the tale Deirdre of the Sorrows, um, which is quite a famous one in the Ulster cycle. She's a tragic heroine figure. And her story is kicked off by the prophecy of uh, that druid that Deirdre would grow up to be very beautiful, that kings and lords would go to war over her, blood would be shed because of her, and Ulster's three greatest warriors would be forced into exile for her sake.
0: It's quite a lot to hang around a person's neck, isn't it?
3: Yeah, you can imagine why she feels a bit sorrowful. Yeah, (laughs) And this prophecy, (laughs) totally ignored by the king, of course came true. Uh, (laughs) So true speaking augury there about these really big life-changing things. Mm. But we also have other examples in the Irish mythological cycle, including druids raising magical storms to prevent enemies landing their ships. Yeah,
0: absolutely classic one, the raising of a storm. So there's this idea of mystical power in addition to a close connection to the gods.
3: Yes. Of course, once Ireland is Christianised, Druids appear as sorcerers who are trying to oppose Christianity and get in the way of saints. Mm. Um, So there's a description in a story of the life of St Columba of Druids raising clouds and mist and creating fences of protection to stop St Columba and St Patrick progressing and converting people. (laughs)
0: Likely. Chinny, chin, chin, I'd say to that one.
3: Yeah. I mean, I I like the idea that there's this sort of linking um, notion of using the weather Mm. Uh, the, the connection of the druids to nature is so powerful that they can actually manipulate it
0: yeah I mean we, we see that with witches though as well don't we yeah you know exactly. lots of witches are accused of summoning storms or manipulating the weather when very often it may be that a, they're lucky guesses. B, the they... The weather they,
3: is unpredictable. Yeah, the
0: weather is unpredictable. But, but also that it's it's a, a, a kind of thing to hang around their next when something bad mm. happens. And girl, it's very you.
3: difficult to prove they didn't. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. You know, once mm. the weather's gone, you can't exactly interrogate it. No, so. <laughs> that's very true. And um, we've also got an the Fenian cycle a number of Druid characters, including Bormul, who is a lady Druid who helps bring up Phil McCall.
0: Get in. One of my guesses is correct. Ladies can be Druids. Now, I don't know why, but I have always associated the idea of Druids with the kind of image of a man... With a long white beard.
3: No, ladies can absolutely be druids. That Uh, is cool. uh, A famous one, but she's not the only one in the Fenian cycle. There's, there's quite a few. They're often daughters of noted male druids, Mm. but not always. Sometimes they're simply druids in their own right, and they
0: just have the
3: same powers, the same respect in their society. I
0: love that. See, I'm really in folk tales anyway. (laughs) So I'm really interested Mm. in the role magic seems to play, at least in folk tales, because it seems to me that as though there's. There's a bit of a crossover between the religious practice of Druidry and this idea of being a sorcerer or being a magician, a wizard of some kind.
3: Yeah, there's also a bit of conflation in the modern world with Wicca. There's a number of similarities between the two paths. And some people even combine Druid and Wiccan ideas and practices, just as other people combine different spiritual ways with Druidry.
0: Okay, so my spidey sense is, is tingling here. We're talking about druidry coming back to life again i mean we know that there are modern druids don't we
3: yes we do every solstice we see a nice photograph of them at stonehenge yes celebrating don't we mm-hmm. um, but it's much wider than i thought it was when i started looking into this really yeah so census data from 2013 which is obviously 10 years ago now had the druid population of the anglophone world at 59,299 so it likely exceeds that now 10 years later
0: wow see that's quite an interestingly high number and yet There is a long time when we don't really hear anything about the druids at all, isn't there? Like, presumably, yeah, Christianity starts to dominate. Druidry falls away. And Mm. then we go through, I guess, what we call the early modern era, and people aren't writing about Druids during that period of time, No, Indeed,
3: no. Really, from the 7th century onwards, with the widening spread of Christianity through Western Europe and Celtic countries, we don't hear a lot from or about Druids then, until the 18th century, when there's a revival in
0: interest in their history. So that seems maybe slightly ahead of the Romantic Celtic revival, but only a little bit. It
3: is, but the one certainly blossoms into the other. I Mm. mean, in interest in Scottish Gaelic culture greatly increased in the late 18th century which we can partly thank Sir Walter Scott for.
0: (laughs) Well we can also thank Irish nationalism because that's really what was bubbling underneath you know poets like Thomas More collecting folk songs you know Irish melodies and, and so on and so forth. Now we must tell you Talking about Walter Scott. Mm. (laughs) While Eleanor and I love literature, and Scott theoretically falls right into my area of interest, we both struggle a little bit with so old to Scott
3: <laughs> yeah definitely not my cup of tea mm. um, luckily he's far from the only person getting involved in yes. this Gaelic revival that's James McPherson's Ossian mm. um, and you, you mentioned Thomas More yeah. and we can even see at this point in time a great revival of interest in folk songs with popular composers like Beethoven creating arrangements of Scottish folk songs folk dances starting to appear in the ballrooms of the wealthy and this sort of growing sense of Celtic identity you've talked about Irish nationalism and Mm -hmm. I think that's that really rises up at this point doesn't it you start seeing Celtic inspired patterns appearing in art and this romantic sense of the past a connection to nature and humanity's sort of more natural state the noble savage all of that stuff becomes really sought after
0: oh yeah definitely and and that's partly to do with the industrial revolution blossoming and blooming the age of enlightenment and so on and so forth I'm i mean rolling
3: like, right into your your friends the romantic poets. yeah that's
0: right i mean yeah william blake as an example he actually has a vague connection to druidry And the ancient order actually claims that William Blake was their chosen chief at the time. But, I mean, there's no evidence in anything Blake really did to suggests that this is true no he was not the
3: chosen (laughs) chief of the ancient druid order i think it's more likely he was in the vicinity of the druidic revival Mm. it certainly interested him enough to write about it and he he does write about it he was kind of druid adjacent
0: yeah he wasn't a chief though
3: (laughs) no he was definitely friends with people who attended the first gorseth of bards on primrose hill in london in 1792 though although there's no record of him being present himself
0: okay what is the gore set of bards, Eleanor?
3: Well, it all stems from this interesting but rather dubious character, Iolo Morganwich.
0: Well, you were just talking about James McPherson. I mean, he's a dodgy character. When we talk about Ossian, the basic idea of the Ossianic poetry is, somebody coming along and saying I've found all of these ancient poems, presenting them as if they're real, and everyone going, oh my god there's this whole balladic folkloric tradition of these ancient heroes from the past becomes a bestseller turns out he didn't find them at all they they aren't old, he just wrote them, made them up, and, and faked the whole thing am I basically on the right track is this guy, Iolo Mogunwig the same sort of chap
3: well in some ways Iolo whose real name by the way was Edward Williams um, was a force for good as he (laughs) championed the Druidic revival and some of the traditions that he put forward are still used today however he has also been called hateful, by noted grammarian Sir John Morris-Jones, who said it would be an age before our history and literature are clean of the traces of his dirty fingers. Oh,
0: naughty Edward. I mean, Iolo. Iolo. (laughs) (laughs) You got me properly intrigued. What did Edward get up to?
3: Well, You are quite right. He is 100% in the Macpherson camp of things. He was a Welsh antiquarian and a poet in the 18th and early 19th century, and he supposedly discovered a number of historical and poetic manuscripts. They were all about it. Yeah, they were all about it. He founded the secret society called the Gorses, which is a society of Welsh poets, writers, and musicians. Supposedly, their activities are based on real historical activities of the Druids. But it was discovered after his death that Ioli had actually forged a lot of the manuscripts and simply invented things. Uh,
0: I mean, amazing, like full credit to him because he got away with it, at least in his lifetime. But I think this has had a really serious impact on certainly English culture, but maybe even European and Western yeah. culture. Well,
3: the juridic philosophies that... Morgan essentially made up, had a huge impact oh. and the Gorseth like the idea of the Gorseth has grown to become the modern osterthood festival, which celebrates the arts and its ideas continue to permeate modern really? culture yeah, <laughs> I mean the Eisistofod oh. itself does have genuine roots in the ancient past, but I think the way it's celebrated today partially comes from the Gorseth and its rituals. And those are Iola's invention.
0: Wow. Okay, so what is the, you, you just used the word, "iced the Ford."
3: Uh, The Eisteddfod. Well, in Druidry, it's a specific ceremony dedicated to the recitation of poetry and of musical performances. Among the Druidic community, it's often believed that bards should be divinely inspired in producing their work. But um, in Wales today, the National Eisteddfod is this huge festival of the arts celebration, um, which is not limited to Welsh language culture anymore. (sighs) It used to be, but I I think it's a bit more open these days.
0: I'm just kind of sitting here vibrating slightly slightly with rage to know that it would appear that a lot of what we understand as druidry comes from a fraudster.
3: I mean, he undoubtedly was inspired by his knowledge of Welsh folklore and literature. It was the kind of forgery that only a real scholar could produce. Oh, well, that's that's fine (laughs) then. That's fine. He made a lot up, but he did a lot of research and created this very original artistic body of work. Mm. He was so good that it took nearly 100 years after his death for academics to conclusively prove he'd fabricated his material. Yeah, okay,
0: fair play. So he really dedicated himself to cheating everyone. Yeah,
3: but (laughs) although he was a fraud, yes, his lasting legacy has been quite positive, I would say. What, so
0: sort of as an act of poetry,
3: positive? Yeah, I think it's super interesting in the context of modern Druidry, actually, because one of its key principles is creativity. Mm, okay, yeah. Hear me out. <laughs> the Order of Bards, Ovates and Druids, which incidentally uses those three ranks of membership because those were the ones established by O. L. Morganwick in his course mm. says that it works with Druidry as a spiritual way and practice, which speaks to three of our greatest yearnings, to be fully creative in our lives, to commune deeply with the world of nature and to gain access to a source of profound wisdom.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is really interesting, but (laughs) it's just some guy who's made it up. If it's not based on fact, like that's
3: uncomfortable. And they fully admit as well. They say, you know, although he did make it up, the key principles are ones that we quite want to follow.
0: (sighs) That's so interesting, but... My goodness. Now, Eleanor, if we've got time, I want to ask about the Druids and the Ogham alphabet. Now, Eleanor gave me a beautiful set of Ogham tree staves not long ago. Each of those is marked with a different glyph in the Ogham alphabet, each made of the wood of the corresponding tree. It's an extremely beautiful thing. And I know there is a system of tree lore in the Celtic tradition is that an invention of this guy or does that have roots to something
2: earlier? <laughs>
3: no, no. So tree law is important to many druids, with each tree having different associations to moods, deities, energies, planets, phases of life. And those different tree species are often linked to the Ogba alphabet. Yeah, I
0: mean, this is something I have been studying right now. So, yeah, it's very interesting. This
3: is used by druids in divination and you're, you're all right it does have a genuine historical I thought past it did, yeah. it's an early medieval alphabet which was primarily used to write the early Irish language and the names of the trees can be ascribed to its letters too for example the letter dare which means oak and on your set of staves dare is carved onto the stave yeah, made of that's oak right. yeah, wood yeah, yeah. And And many modern druids may still use the Ogham in divination or in other rituals, although some prefer the alternative, Kolbrin.
0: Oh, I haven't heard of the Kolbrin. It's
3: a different Bardic alphabet, vaguely similar to ancient Greek. And the and wait, invention wait, wait,
2: wait. of Iola This
3: guy
0: just made it up.
3: I'm afraid he did. Um, he made it up. He created wooden framed versions and presented them to people, passing them off as real druidic ah,
0: artefacts. This man, he's naughty. Edward. We should start calling him, we Edward. Start calling him Edward. Edward. His name <laughs> is Iola. We've all got that friend who's changed their name to something like arty and funky that isn't their actual name. <laughs> and, and if it turns out that they're a sneak, then you just need to call them by their original original name so edward with his (laughs) made-up alphabet you
3: do have to shake your head there's something amoral about such a large-scale fraud too isn't there well
0: maybe but not in a religious sense i think people are throwing serious life energy into these kind of systems of belief (laughs) it's just some rando making stuff up i don't know i'm pretty freaked out (laughs) okay so let's say i want to become a druid now, earlier you mentioned something about 20 years of study. Like, Do we have anywhere a sense of what is involved in my 20-year process to train to become a druid? Well,
3: luckily for you, you no longer have to spend 20 years studying. Uh-huh. Traditionally, it would have taken that time, but many of the skills which would have been taught in that time are skills that you have already, right. like reading, writing and memorising, oh, for example. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, you can actually do the training by correspondence course today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a correspondence course yeah it doesn't seem terribly connected to nature and the woods and the caves to me
3: well the order of bards ovates and druids provides all the resources what, um
0: what like via email
3: yep or by post <laughs> Correspondence I mean, course. am i the only one thinking this is insane i mean i'm sure i'm sure if you wanted to you could phone them up and have a nice conversation with a druid
0: Yeah, but even so, surely there's a problem. If you've got like an orally passed down tradition that is based on the principle that people hold this knowledge so sacred that you have to only speak it and memorise it and then pass it on to the next generation. The idea that you could send it as a PDF, there's something a bit messed up about that, isn't there?
3: Well, unfortunately, the oral thing was blown completely apart by edward yeah well and it's absolutely been written down since then um so (laughs) you can you can totally have it as a pdf but i mean is
0: modern druidic belief then based primarily about what edward came up with
3: yes and no i think there has been an effort to seek out older sources Mm. and then there are if, if Julius Caesar's to be believed, there are plenty of practices that the Iron Age Celtic Druids uh, got up to that you maybe don't want to emulate today. I mean, you'd be arrested for a start if yes. so he <laughs> built a large wicker man and started stuffing people you didn't like into it. But um,
0: <laughs> maybe. <laughs>
3: yes, I, I think there is a degree of iolo still permeating. Mm. He wrote a Druidic prayer which was used at the opening of his Gorseth rituals, which many Druids do still use today.
0: I feel very conflicted. I would like to hear from some druids about how they feel about this idea of their faith kind of being spun out by uh, somebody who's written written a fiction.
3: So I think it's important to make the distinction between druidic practices a faith because not all people who are druids and identify as druids are religious
0: yeah okay
3: it can just be a spiritual pathway without Mm. being a strictly theological pathway so the connection to nature the feeling divinely inspired by nature wanting to live a creative life perhaps being concerned for the state of the planet particularly at the moment none of those things are to do with theology
0: no that's true yeah, I mean that does tick a lot of boxes for me personally. I guess the big question is can you be a druid and really hate Edward? Because at the moment I've got I've got a bit of a burning dislike. Oh, I dislike. think you can. Okay, I, I think plenty do. <laughs> <laughs> well then people watch this space I may yet train mm-hmm. to become a druid. Well
3: it takes a minimum of 3 years which okay. is a bit more manageable. Yeah. So maybe if you're looking for something new and you've finished your masters. Yeah. Now, we started the podcast today by talking about mistletoe. I knew you were
0: going to talk about mistletoe. Woohoo!
3: Which we know the druids held sacred and mm. valued highly. It was likely used in many rituals and believed to have magical properties. Mm. It's thought that the plant offers protection against evil as well as being linked to fertility because of its spontaneous generation.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, this, so this is if part- you
3: were looking to conceive, you might wear a sprig of mistletoe somewhere on your body.
0: Yeah, this is in part because uh, mistletoe grows without the soil. Mm-hmm. So it grows uh, on trees and, and therefore it seemed like a, a magical thing. So it's a really important plant because it can be poisonous. It can help with fertility. It has this strange status where it's almost its own life force and, and also liminal in the same way that water mm. is between life and death and healing. But yeah. it
3: is essentially a parasite, isn't it? Yeah, it, basically. It
0: grows on other plants. Mm-hmm.
3: Now, you probably have your own views by now on Lindo Man and how he died and whether or not his death was part of a ritual sacrifice. But I will say this archaeologists found traces of mistletoe pollen in his stomach so we know that mistletoe was connected to his death in some way yeah
0: so cool it's a mistletoe mystery i love it
3: i'm going to leave you with this incredible description of a druid rite involving mistletoe growing on an oak tree which was written in the first century ad by pliny the elder The Druids hold nothing more sacred than the mistletoe and a tree on which it is growing, provided it is a hard timbered oak. Mistletoe is rare and when found it is gathered with great ceremony and particularly on the sixth day of the moon. Hailing the moon in a native word that means healing all things, they prepare a ritual sacrifice and banquet beneath the tree and bring up two white bulls whose horns are bound for the first time on this occasion. A priest arrayed in white vestments climbs the tree and with a golden sickle cuts down the mistletoe, which is caught in a white cloak. Then finally they kill the victims, praying to a god to render his gift propitious to those on whom he has bestowed it. They believe that mistletoe given in drink will impart fertility to any animal that is barren and that it is an antidote to all poisons. Oh,
0: wow, that is so beautiful and so interesting. I
3: think it captures some of the beauty and the mystery of these traditional rituals from an observer's perspective, Mm. and perhaps explains in part why people have been so intrigued by the Druids for centuries. Oh,
0: wow, thank you so much, Eleanor. That was super interesting, but I think you're right when you say there has to be a part two, because... Didn't even touch on Anglesey.
3: We didn't. So that's for next time. I really have only scratched the surface. um, But I hope that those who were as new to the topic as I was found it interesting. And if you've actually read anything interesting about druids, or even if you've chosen to follow the path yourself...
0: Especially if you're following the path yourself. I'd be so interested.
3: Do please get in touch with us if you're happy to share your experiences at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. Tell us all about them.
0: Oh, yes, please. That's also the place to send us your thoughts on the podcast in general and your own tales of wonder and dread. Or you can get in touch with us on social media via all the normal places, facebook.com forward slash three. Three Ravens Podcast, Instagram at Three Ravens Podcast, and X or Twitter at Three Ravens Pod.
3: If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast. We have lots of exclusive goodies on there, and a new monthly newsletter for December has just come out. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we will be back on Monday for our usual tour of the historic counties of England, and there'll be a brand new Bestiary episode on Thursday.
0: Oh, I also want to remind everyone about our brand new Three Ravens. Flash fiction competition: Send us an original story with a folky atmosphere, folky ideas, up to a thousand words, and then we're going to put them all together in a special episode so everyone can enjoy one another's work.
3: We are so excited to read your stories. We
0: really are. Until next time, though, while our mistletoes fall in that way, we'll go this way.
3: And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour and our logo is by Ollie James Dare.
0: The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening.
3: God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such man, With a down, dairy, 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 down, down